Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and this week marks the culmination of a journey that began for me 911 days ago. On April 21st, 2020, Mark Favreau, executive editor of the New Press, emailed me and asked, would you be interested in talking about your next book? For the next two plus years, I set out on the journey of researching, interviewing, writing, rewriting, and putting together the manuscript that became the book, How We Win the Civil War. This week is the official publication week for the book, and this podcast episode is the final episode of the four-part series we've aired leading up to today. In today's episode, we're sharing the live recording that took place between me and my good friend, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, on Wednesday, October 19th. The conversation was moderated by the awesome Rana Epting, the first woman of color to serve as executive director of Move On, and someone I've had the pleasure of working with since Obama was first elected when a grouping of social justice activists would get together regularly for dinners in D.C. in 2009. In terms of me and Corey, we were students at Stanford together back in the day, and we reconnected almost 20 years ago when he was running for mayor in Newark, and he did a West Coast swing to build out his political network. And I remember him asking me and my wife, Susan, to walk this road with him. We've been with him on the journey ever since, and what I've been most inspired by is the extent to which Corey has the knowledge and talent to squarely address issues of race and culture and to bring that conversation to the national political dialogue and inspire people of all races to work together to build a multiracial democracy. I was honored that he took time out from a very busy schedule to participate in the town hall meeting, and I'm incredibly grateful to the groups that co-sponsor the town hall, Move On, the Working Families Party, Community Change, Netroots Nation, Justice Democrats, and Voto Latino. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'd be grateful if you could help get the word out about the book, How We Win the Civil War. If you haven't yet purchased a copy, now is the time. And if you have, thank you. And please consider gifting another copy to a friend. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. I'm super excited for this discussion we're about to have here tonight. I'm Rana Epting. I'm the executive director of Move On, and I'll be moderating the discussion today. For those of you who don't know, but many of you probably do because you're Move On members yourself, but Move On is an online community of millions of people throughout this country who are moved to take action for progress. For over a generation, Move On members have been a bulwark against the radical right, challenging our voices to end wars, to protect and create a multiracial democracy that works for all of us, and to passionately advance justice for all. And in a few moments, we are gonna have an enthralling conversation with Steve and Senator Booker regarding how we can build multiracial unity despite unrelenting efforts to fan the flames of white re racial resentment by the right. 
this really while is I am only halfway through book, and while I, I am only halfway through a personal source I have found it an inspirational source moving forward inspiration to do the work that is moving forward to shape our society that is necessary our democracy to be grounded in our democracy grounded truly believe in mutuality this is an incredible book I can't wait for this conversation incredible book and it is quite an honor to be able to moderate it is quite an honor to be able to moderate directly to what I myself it speaks and what many millions what I myself of members and what many about millions so deeply and I'm sure all of you so before I get started I also want to appreciate the several co-hosts of tonight's event you might be coming to us from these communities as well so we have Netroots Nation Community Change Working Families Party Justice Democrats and Voto Latino and many more so thank you for your support and for making tonight happen both of our guests tonight are children of the civil rights movement who have devoted their lives to the fight for multiracial democracy in a multitude of ways. I find them incredibly inspiring. We're gonna hear from Senator Booker. And if you're on this live stream, then you probably already know that Senator Booker has been New Jersey's junior Senator since 2013. He's also the ninth African-American person to ever serve in the United States Senate and the first African-American Senator to represent New Jersey, let alone an incredible champion for democracy and justice and a fair economy throughout. And Steve Phillips, Steve is a national political leader, columnist, host of the Color Conscious political podcast, Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, how the demographic revolution has created a new American majority. Now he's following up his first bestseller with his latest book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. And it was just released yesterday. Super exciting. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Steve and Senator Booker. Hello, good evening, good afternoon. I think we have afternoon and evening on this call. How are you both tipped? today. I'm doing well. Um, and I, uh, thank you, Rana, for hosting. And thank you, Senator. And you've got a very, very busy schedule and really appreciate um, being in, in partnership with you guys. And, and then I thank all the, the uh, co-sponsors as well. This has been, I, I put a thing on Facebook yesterday that has been 909 days since the publisher asked me about writing this book and just came out yesterday. And so it's been quite a journey and I'm really um, um, grateful and honored to be in partnership with so many important um, leaders and organizations in the progressive movement. And hey, uh, first of all, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say, first of all, we're close enough friends to me to tell everybody before we got on this, I was being, uh, 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 Steve was teasing me for showing up in sweats um, in my comfortable in my own home. Uh, but this is how I feel with him, so comfortable. I, I wanna say to you, Rana, before we even go, I often say that change doesn't come from Washington, it comes to Washington by people who demand it, who work for it, who struggle for it, who are foot soldiers for that justice and move on as the embodiment of that truth. And you all have made a difference. I remember, especially when we were battling to save the Affordable Care Act, how I really think that that Move On was one of those but four organizations. We would not have turned the tide there and saved the Affordable Care Act. So I'm just grateful for you, for your leadership. You're one of those leaders that knows uh, you can't lead the people without loving the people. And I just appreciate that spirit. And then I just want to say, this is exciting for me. I'm a little under the weather, but 
Uh, Steve Phillips has is, is been a friend of mine for God, 30 plus years. Um, and if I knew back in college that he would be so impactful in my own trajectory of life, I would have been a lot nicer to him yes. back in college. <laughs> back when we both had hair, right? We had luscious afros, my friend. It was, it was beautiful, but hair today, gone tomorrow. Um, and I just want to thank you. Uh, if I can just say right now, Steve came in when I was running for in a very competitive primary for the United States Senate and articulated a strategy on the ground strategy in New Jersey that didn't just help us to win the primary. We got a voter turnout that was higher than the last competitive primary in New Jersey, which was the Obama Hillary primary. But this was an off. I don't know if you remember this, Phil, uh, Steve, it was it was in uh, an August primary in a special election. And that's how huge the turnout was because a lot of your insights to understanding how do we build multiracial coalitions uh, to ultimately win big victory. So I, I am grateful to be here and to give testimony to how important your first book was, uh, that bestseller, and how much I think a lot of us were excited uh, to dig into this one and, and its implications for our democracy. Thank you very much. Well, lots of love on this call. Um, I want to actually start digging in with you both. Uh, I have like, I'll start by saying America has experienced profound inflection points throughout our history. And the January 6th insurrection being one of the most recent and profoundly disconcerting moments of, of my lifetime, yet it didn't occur in a vacuum. Um, and Senator Booker, while many of us were seeing this play out on TV or on social media, you were physically there, if I'm not mistaken. Can I ask you to share your reflections on that day? And, and most importantly, it's meaning for where we are right now as a country as we head into the midterms and the future. Look, if America hasn't broken your heart, uh, you don't love her enough. And and this was probably one of my my greater moments of my life where I was heartbroken by this country. Um, you just, I, I was already sort of sitting in my seat in the back row with uh, Mark Kelly and some other senators watching in, in disbelief where colleagues of mine on the other side of the aisle were standing up and explaining why they felt like we shouldn't do what had been rote routine for generations and, and uh, approve the, uh, accept and approve the electoral college. And then pandemonium kind of broke loose when the armed individuals came on and removed the vice president and then started shutting down this room, slamming doors as after they shuttled in staff members, many of whom were crying and scared. It was at that point that I thought to check my cell phone on the Senate floor and my cell phone was blowing up with messages. Are you okay? Are you all right? Are you safe? Because we still didn't have the images. And when we eventually were were uh, uh, escaped the Senate floor, I still remember Kelly and I were two of the last people to leave the Senate floor. And the first thing I saw was a downed police officer. And I ran over to him and I said, are you okay? And he looks at me and he, with, with fear said, I, I've been hit, I've been hit. And it still didn't clue into me until I saw more injured police officers on our escape route. We got to a, a, a safe location uh, far away from the Capitol. I convinced them to let me go up to my office, barricaded myself in. And this was the moment of my life, which I'll never forget, was when I turned on the TV and the first time I, I truly saw the images. And the first image I saw, just feet from where I had been sitting on the other side of the closed chamber, was the Confederate flag being waved and something inside of me was wounded in a way that that will 
scars will remain for the rest of my life. I, the first thought I had was my dad who grew up in Jim Crow South and um, loved this country, even though he has so many stories of where the institutional rules of this nation were so hateful to him and loved it so much and its ideals and believed in the promise of our democracy. I, I, he, he never lived to see that day, but I, I know what it would have done to him to see the Confederate flag being waved triumphantly uh, from our nation's most sacred civic space. And then to see the other symbols of hate, the Camp Auschwitz t-shirts, uh, the blatant anti-Semitism and bigotry being uh, 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 heralded as people chanted chants of violence to slay American leaders from Mike Pence to vicious threats uh, and racist remarks to many of the black police officers who have since Capitol police officers since told me the vile things that were said to them by the by the people who stormed the Capitol. So for me, this was one of the lowest days in all of American history uh, in the sense that we allowed our Capitol to be overrun by such hateful, violent uh, people who thought to thwart the very democratic ideals to which we pledge our, 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 an oath to on a regular basis. And Steve, your book actually begins with an analysis of this day and its intersections with American history. Can you share a bit with us about your reflections on what this means for democracy and the concept of whiteness? Yeah, and I, I open up with a, a, a story about that day and some of the participants in the insurrection and that in my introduction and the introduction, the title of the introduction um, I, I use the phrase, a choice between democracy and whiteness. And that's a line that I borrowed from the historian Taylor Branch, who was talking to uh, Isabel Wilkerson, um, in, and that's captured in her book, Cast, this amazing book. And they were talking about the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump, particularly the Tree of Life synagogue uh, shooting, which was a direct uh, response to all the demonizing of the so Central American so-called caravan during the midterms of that election. And Brandt says, people said they wouldn't stand for being a minority in their own country. And he says, the real question is, if offered a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And then Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air for a minute, neither of us willing to hazard a guess as to that one. And I use that framing around the January 6th because that's exactly what we're, we were confronting there, is that, you, as the senator just said, you had people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing T-shirts saying MAGA Civil War January 6th, 2021, shouting racist epithets at the Black police officers on the Capitol, and all in defense of a man who, uh, he's the called the, the country's you know, first white president, proud defender of whiteness. I mean, I didn't even realize, I recently went back and, and, and researched this. We forget that Trump was not very popular or very powerful when he first got into the race. He was polling at 4% in the polls. Then he started talking about attacking Mexicans, talking about Mexicans being racist, sending the message that he was going to defend this country, meaning white people from those, those dark uh, uh, people across the border. You didn't talk about a wall, wall up against Canada, right? And so he zoomed up in a month to the top of the polls and has never looked back. And so whiteness is the essence of his power. And so you have that being the choice. And then you have democracy, where 50 governors, all Republican and Democrat, all certified the results of this election, saying that Joe Biden had won. 
And so we have the peaceful transfer of power, which has always happened in this country. And then you have this mob of people wanting to keep this white man in the White House, literally chasing down the country's elected officials, including um, Trump's vice president. So that was such a distillation of the of the the struggle and the country, the, the, the conflict in this country right now. Democracy. Multi, are we going to be a multiracial democracy or is this actually going to be? A primarily white country, as Trump has has you know repeatedly um, stood for, and so that I thought was a poignant framing for where we are at in this country and which direction that we actually go. And so that was um, I thought it was a, a compelling way to try to open the book and illustrate these points by building off of this uh, um, insurrection that we had within our within our nation. Yeah, and. You know, people people might ask, Rana, how is this book inspiring to you? This sounds very depressing. <laughs> but but what you also um, we need, what we also must realize is the other side of the coin here. It's that this may be happening, but there's also incredible goodness and mutual and sense of mutuality in this country. I, I kind of want to ask both of you. It, maybe I'll start with Steve this time. Like, how do we reach people? How do we build? multiracial solidarity with white people. Um, what is the case? Like, are there examples? Are, what are our models that we can look to? So I want to go to that. And that actually is the, that's the whole second half of the book, our case studies of where we have actually won and won in places that were former parts of the Confederacy. But actually, just to tie the tie the end on this piece around the insurrection. So um, Corey and I were just talking before this, and um, you could if you could share that piece about what Reverend Warnock was saying between the fifth and the sixth. So I thought that was a very um, compelling distillation. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I want to answer the question, but I want to go to that point because I do think it's one of my favorite moments as a United States Senator. I've witnessed some of my colleagues give uh, phenomenal speeches, but this one is is ranks easily in, in, in my top favorite, which was watching Reverend Warnock stand up to talk about voting rights and the John Lewis voting rights bill. And I moved my seat to sit close to him a few seats away in the front row as he stood up and began to speak. He said he told the story of, of January 5th, where it was election was decided that Georgia, this former Confederate state, was going to send forth two of their senators and making history, a Jewish American and a black American. And, and this is a state where blacks and Jews are not the majority. This was a coalition that sent forth two of the best individuals who happened to be black and Jewish. And he celebrated that in his speech. And then he talked about, you know, having the next day, January 6th, going to, on these morning shows, being invited, you know, you made it when you get on The View. And he, and he was having this incredible day. And then he sees what's happening, sees how much hate and racism and bigotry and violence overtook the Capitol. And then he makes a call on the Senate floor to the conscience of our country. Who will we be, a January 5th America or January 6th America? That that ultimately is uh, the choice. And so I, I think that your book does something that some of my favorite authors do, uh, Steve, which unflinchingly tells the truth, doesn't does not sort of softball or candy coat it with this understanding that you can't have great hope without confronting great despair. You can't have great faith in this democracy without seeing unflinchingly uh, the challenges, the real challenges we face. And that's what births hope. I always think that 
true hope is this active conviction that despair will not have the last word. And that's why the second half of your book, I think maybe if you, you, you can jump in now, the second half of your book, to me, does point a pathway uh, of hopefulness. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And 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 that is what I think the, in a lot of ways, Georgia is the transition point. And Georgia is actually one of the most um, central examples that I that I use um, in the second half and trying to look at places that have been historically formally Confederate stronghold. And the, the headline of this all is that in this battle between is this going to be a primarily white country or a multiracial democracy, the forces around multiracial democracy are the majority of people. And so, which is why the other side spends so much time trying to stop us from voting, because they realize that they're actually in the minority. And so that's like the headline to this. But frankly, not enough people, even in progressive and democratic uh, progressive politics, understand and invest in this. And so Georgia is this linchpin piece. And so I title the Georgia chapter, Georgia, that's not one we expected, which is what Joe Biden said election night as he looked at the states where he was winning. And the reason he didn't expect it is because they didn't understand and they hadn't seen and frankly hadn't invested in the work that Stacey Abrams and others were actually doing there to lay the foundation. I met Stacey Abrams 10 years ago and she said there we lose by 200,000 votes in Georgia. There's a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color. I'm going to register them to vote. And over steadily over the next 10 years, she went about doing that work. And then we helped to raise, you know, helped her to raise some initial money and, you know, we raised her like $20,000 in 2012, be able to move this piece forward. So she, I talked to her in 2021 after the new Senate had passed the first COVID relief bill. And I said, so you took that first 20,000 we gave you and you've turned it into $2 trillion for the American people. Right? She says, I like to provide return on investment. <laughs> but that's, that it's so illustrative and symbolic is that steadily increasing the participation and changing the electorate to reflect the population was able to transform and flip that state, which then flipped the entire United States Senate, which then made impossible everything that has happened over these past two years, from the infrastructure bill to the climate bill to Katanji Brown-Jackson. None of that would have happened had we not done the steady work. And so that's what I will try to lay out in the second half of the book, is I call it a liberation battle plan. Each of these case studies, each of these states, Georgia, Arizona, Harris County, Texas, Virginia, San Diego, California, has had similar elements in, of, of what I call this liberation battle plan, a level five leader, someone who's self-effacing, but focused fiercely on the cause and on the organization, strong civic engagement organization, detailed data-driven plan, and playing the long game. Each of those places has been at it for 10 years straight with the same leadership core. And they've won. That's why somebody had asked me, so what was I most excited about this book? I think I feel like frankly, those you know, people of color, we've heard in politics, even from many from our friends, like, yes, yes, this people of color stuff is important, but we have to win. So we have to put that on the back burner and we have to actually do this other piece over here. And I was like, no, we are winning. We won Arizona. We won in, in Georgia. We've won nine out of 10 elections in Virginia. These are the cornerstone places of what was the Confederacy. So we should be learning from and gathering those lessons and extrapolating them more fundamentally. So that I do ultimately feel that it's, I mean, I just said it's a hopeful book, but I feel hopeful because I've seen this progress and I've seen what can actually happen. And, and, and I, I make the first half very intense because I want us to understand the urgency and the ferocity of what we're facing. But once we face it, 
I'm actually quite optimistic and hopeful around what's possible. And, and what's always sustained me, um, Steve, is that, and you do this in your book, which is point to um, historical um, uh, antecedents that that speak to this level five leadership. You speak about the Montgomery bus boycott, the humility, uh, the, the, uh, the, the humble nature of those leaders, the focused action. That was a complex you know, battle plan for how to confront it. And so, Rana, to one of your questions, and you are this kind of leader in my eyes, because when you confront that kind of hate replacement theory, all, all of the kind of things that were at the core of Donald Trump signaling there's good people on both sides, I can go through all that stuff, that often makes us feel the sense of moral outrage. If it stops there, then, then I actually think that we are not in any way part of the solution. When I was uh, running in um, in uh, for the in the presidential the crowded presidential primary, I was in Iowa for a town hall, and I'm running, <clears throat> I'm running for town hall stage, and I'm about to jump up there, and a very big man stops me at the bottom of the stage and goes, "Dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face." And I look at him and I go, "Dude, that's a felony," <laughs> and, and, and and I'm like, "That's not how we win. That's how we lose America." And I got up there and I went exactly where Steve goes in his books. I go, let me tell you, we, we, and I didn't mean by we, us, but that generation didn't beat Bull Connor because they doubled down on his tactics. They didn't bring bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses to try to compete him. No, what they, they were these unbelievable alchemists who somehow took that hate and transformed it into a love like we had never seen before. They changed the frequency of hate. Uh, to the higher frequency uh, of love and suddenly unleashed the apathy and indifference of millions of Americans. In fact, if you know, Taylor Branch in his book um, has, he calls it the children's miracle because in 12 days from their marching, from their changing of the frequency, um, uh, thousands poured down to Birmingham to join the efforts. And in 12 days, a place where they said, Bull Connor was like, it will never fall. It fell in 12 days. I don't know if they changed Bull Connor from a raving racist into a, a, a love peace guy. That's not the challenge. The opposite of hate, uh, uh, of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's not engaging people. It's not organizing and mobilizing and helping people to understand that when you confront that darkness, don't let it turn your soul dark. Definitely don't let it make you surrender to cynicism. It has got to be an activating agent to, to get involved in the harder pathway, the more dangerous pathway of, of being an agent of love, of radical love. And if you and if you read, and I know, and Mrs. Wilkerson does a beautiful job. I'm glad you mentioned her as an author. Cast uh, a, is such an important book. But you have these imperfect geniuses at our founding who themselves are wrestling with their own uh, 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 inner hypocrisy. And so you see these points with which they reflect the bigotries of the time. Women aren't referred to at all. Native Americans in the Declaration of Independence are savages. But yet they, they that wrestling, they show their genius and hope for this ultimate democracy not based on race. And, and this ultimate ideal that I call love, some people might call it interdependency, but at the very end of the Declaration of Independence, they make this declaration, we must mutually pledge. If we're gonna make it as a country, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And, and so that is what I think both of the leaders I'm, I have the privilege of being on this call with, that you both talk about a lot, 
which is it's getting out of this, uh, Buber calls it the I-thou relationship or the us-them relationship, and somehow rekindling this understanding that it's not us-them, that we're all in this together, and that we need each other to, to be an exclusion, exclusionary democracy is to end democracy. The only choice we have to save this democracy is to be an inclusionary democracy, where we recognize that we desperately need uh, each other to be successful, to be uh, to be who we say we are. And Ron, can I pick up on this point about the Montgomery bus book? I want to go into that because you were both in terms of like the the hopefulness and then also in terms of the lessons, I think, for today. Right. So one of the things that um, um, Wilkerson talks about is cast. He says that we are all on a stage that was set long before we arrived. And the roles have been predetermined. Who plays what role, right? We've had 46 presidents, all of them men, 45 white men. So the role of president is reserved for a white man. The role of data geek tends to be reserved for a young white guy who they would think of as as a data geek or a role of entrepreneur or somebody who looks like, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. But each of the leaders that I that I, I feature in this book, that's what was striking to me. I mean, Tram Nguyen and Michelle Tremillo and Andrea Guerrero and the leaders of Lucha in Arizona built organizations from scratch to become multi-million dollar electoral powerhouses. Now, what is that if not being an entrepreneur? So you take that piece and then this whole data geek piece. And it was fascinating to look at the Montgomery bus boycott. Because we think the story is right. Oh, you know, Rosa Parks was tired. She sat down. They arrested her. And like a couple of days later, we had ended segregation within the South. First of all, the bus boycott went on for a year. But I mean, we get the advantage of having the time and the luxury to write a book because they really start to think about. I mean, think about if you had to organize a carpool for like 20 people. It's like you'd have to think about it. It's like you can't fit in one car. How many cars are you going to get? What time are you going to actually meet? And what if you had to do it for like 200 people? The Montgomery bus boycott was 50,000 people that they organized an alternative transportation system. And then they were data geeks around it. And they were like, we need this many reams of paper. We're going to cut these reams into thirds. And then we're going to take these thirds and distribute them all over the city. We're going to have pickup points at particular hours of the day. And we have 300 different cars that people are going to be coordinating. What is that if not data genius? and data expertise long before we had personal computers. But we don't see those people as having that type of talent. And and don't forget that they were also being affronted by the police. You know, it wasn't just organizing all that. Now you had cops stopping you, pulling you over, harassing you, trumping up charges against you. That's how the genius really, to me, uh, uh, exhibits itself. Um, not only the complicated leadership and organization and data crunching, but to do it while people are coming at you using the very government that you're trying to save the forces of that government against you. 100%. So you were talking a bit, Corey, about your speech in Iowa and the guy who came up to you and asked you to punch Trump in the face, which I know probably all of us on on this evening have felt at one point or another but that's actually not the way we reach people. That's not the way we win, right? So I actually wanna ask you to give us a little insight into that incredible speech you made um, around uh, Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's, um, I think it was the hearing that you all had and it was, it went viral, it was incredibly moving. And I'm curious, 
um, I don't think you had planned to make that speech, I'm presuming, <laughs> but it really resonated with Americans of all race and colors and stripes and sizes in, in the United States. And what is it, what, is, what are the necessary ingredients to really reach people uh, uh, to, to build a multiracial solidarity and including white people, not just white progressives, white people, period. Let's just first understand that I think that what Kutanji Brown-Jackson was enduring during those hearings, the overwhelming majority of Americans could relate to that feeling of being in a room where you are qualified to be there. Many Americans can relate to a room being where you're the most qualified person, but yet you're enduring depths of disrespect or from microaggressions all the way to outrageous assaults. And I think all of us were feeling this utter, um, uh, I, I, for me, I felt despondency that this incredible human was being disrespected. And I'm on, I'm a, still very junior on that committee. So I had to watch the whole thing play out over many, many hours. And by the time it got to me, I had a list of questions to ask our Supreme Court nominee, but just closed my book and just felt this sense of level set, like, I need to tell the truth here about what we're witnessing and not let them draw me into their negativity where I'm matching their frequency. But I want to exalt this um, human being who is magnificent. The If you just look at ju judicial experience, the most qualified Supreme Court justice jurist now in the history of our country and, and ha who also happens to be a black woman and I just wanted to 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 celebrate that truth and um, let people know that let's not get lost in all of this that's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and and you know she she's just again, I think Steve and I both have the same reverence for these type of leaders. You want to talk about somebody as humble, somebody who you could feel they they live at a different frequency. she 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 is that woman. Look, I, you said those statistics uh, about the first black senator, the ninth in, in American history. I'm only the fourth popularly elected. You know, if you take away the Reconstruction folks, I'm just number four. For me, there was Barack Obama. Uh, before that, Carol Mosley Braun, and then before that, Edmund Brooke. I, so I was number four to be popularly elected. And I, I will tell you, um, a lot of us who are um, – black and brown faces in traditionally white spaces that when I came into the United States Senate, I was stunned. It was at least the first place I had ever worked. And I remember working late one night and having already sort of looked in the committee. I remember looking into the judiciary committee where I now sit and they were all white senators. And then this is what blew me away that I didn't notice until I saw it. When I looked at the committee, everybody sitting behind the, the senators was white. And for me, as a guy who lives in Newark, New Jersey, and saw that these folks are overseeing a judicial system that has been so dramatically biased. If you want to, we're dropping a lot of authors' names, but Michelle Alexander's book, New Jim Crow, read that and you get a full detailing of how this judiciary, the laws that were made on the federal level, uh, have so impacted communities like mine. And I still remember the first night I worked late, the line of people come in at night to, that work in that place and do a lot of the technical work of keeping the structure solid. And, but the whole line cleaning a lot of the other duties of the Senate at night, that was all black and brown, mostly black and brown folks. And so, but this is what I mean about, about 
level setting and truth telling. Uh, um, I went to Chuck Schumer with a great young senator named Brian Schatz, who also uh, uh, was uh, uh, offended by this. And we just simply asked Chuck Schumer to do one thing, force every Democratic senator to publish publicly the diversity statistics of their staffs. Because we knew that there, there weren't women and minorities were not represented by Democratic senators. Now, Chuck has since told me that he got pushback uh, of people that did not want that to happen. But yet now in the five plus years that we've done that, every time that list has been made public, more and more black and brown people and women are not only being hired on Senate staffs, but have, have, are you seeing more and more in positions at the top of Senate staffs. And what's amazing to me, and this is a testimony to the urgency of, of Steve's writings, is that, it, again, it's not us versus them. It's not minority Senate staffers versus white Senate staffers. 100% not. The, the, the senators themselves, the anecdotal stories I've heard about, like, I didn't understand this issue that you were advocating for until I had people on my team in my most intimate conversations that were telling me stories, lived experiences, bringing them to the table that moved me to get on this bill or moved me to lead on this bill. Uh, one of my favorite senators, uh, a guy named Chris Van Hollen, just introduced a remarkable sickle cell bill because he had somebody on his staff that mm. died of sickle cell. So, so diverse teams are better teams. And for me to come in in 2013 at the end of the year and see that one of the, the highest deliberative bodies was so unrepresentative. Um, these are the kind of things uh, that to me are undermining Team America from fulfilling itself. McKinsey, the consulting company, Harvard Business School have so much data on how diverse businesses are more successful. Yet we are still seeing, a la the Supreme Court, who are making some of the most important decisions that they are woefully lacking lived experiences that reflect that of significant, if not the majority of Americans. These are the kind of things that I think are at stake in the tactical day-to-day -day work of trying to get our democracy going uh, in, 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 a, in a way that is inclusive and not exclusive, that is becoming a light unto nations about what humanity can achieve uh, through a, a philosophy that I think, again, is based in the, in the, in the deepest values of, of love. Corey, I want to ask you about kind of off, off of what the, the question that Rana was raising. Forthrightly and unapologetically raising and grappling with issues of race and racism within our society. And I feel like a lot of times in progressive and democratic politics, people don't want to talk about it. They feel like we're going to lose support and we can't address these issues. And I've been particularly struck by there's been two at least two conversations that you and I have been in very like super small, like one was with a corporate, uh, uh, with a uh, Fortune 500 CEO, and another was out here in California with these different Silicon Valley leaders, a small dinner. And in both of them, you were bringing up issues around racial justice and, and inequality. And you were talking about the, um, the uh, program you had in Newark around recidivism and trying to bring African-Americans back from out of prison. And I remember thinking, should you really be saying that here, Corey? <laughs> and so I, you, you've never shied away from that. And I'm, But the conventional wisdom is that you'll pay a political price for bringing those issues up. And I just like wonder if you could talk about how you've navigated that or thought about it, what that's been like for you. 
Yeah, well, God, God bless New Jersey. Uh, you know, we're a state of 12% black folk and, 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 and they have embraced me and given me strong approval ratings, reelected me to this office. Um, but they did not, we confuse a lot of times niceness with a kindness. <laughs> niceness is when people avoid speaking to things that make people feel uncomfortable because you're just trying to be nice. Let's have a nice dinner conversation. That's not, to me, that's not kindness. That's not love. Love is having the courage to make folk feel uncomfortable because you care about them so much that you will tell them the truth. It's my mom before I was leaving at home reflecting what James Baldwin said, I love America more than any other country. That's why I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. Well, my mom was the James Baldwin school. She loved me so much that she would pick on me before I left the house. Boy, pull up your hand, pants, comb your hair. You know, that's the kind of love that I want from, I think that's the love that the core of being a patriot is. And so I, I have been blessed by New Jersey. I have been seriously blessed by Newark. I don't know who I would be without what this city has done for me. And I've lived now for the last 25 uh, uh, years in a low income black and brown community where you see the rawness, not that this doesn't go on in suburban communities where I live, but that's often things are often challenges and problems are often behind closed doors. Every day I come home in my community reminds me of the urgencies of our, demo of our unfulfilled democracy and um, uh, and and helps me to to always stay rooted in what I'm advocating for. And as long as I have this ex insane privilege to be in conversations with people of influence of power, um, I want to be someone who never makes the mistake of of calling out issues. I I remember uh, um, being on a big board when I was very young, and it wasn't until after I left the board that I met. Uh, some uh, incredible activists in, in Chicago who were talking about how boards are not investing in diverse asset managers and all the other questions I could have called if I had just been more aware. And so I, I just don't want to ever be at a table where I'm not calling the questions, even if it means that I might uh, undermine uh, my long-term, like my longevity in that room. And I'll give you the last example of this. Um, I serve, I just got off the phone with Elizabeth Warren. I, I, I serve with these people. And literally as I'm getting off the phone with Elizabeth, we're dealing with an issue. And I'm just like, I, I love you. If I'm, I, this is exactly what I said. If I'm ever in a trench, uh, um, I want to be in with you because she's such a great fighter. Mm -hmm. But there had been moments in, in my time in the Senate, it'll be nine years on Halloween, um, where I've been the only black person in my caucus and I'll never forget Harry Reid once passing me a note in caucus where we were talking about a really difficult race issue. And, and I was just sitting there uh, feeling a little beaten down. Um, and he just sent me a letter where he just put it plain. He goes, please, please um, tell people what you're thinking right now. And I'll never forget what I did. I stood up and I opened my phone and I did a quick search. Cory Booker, Stanford, why have I lost control? And I read a column I wrote as a 22 or 23 year old after the Rodney King beating. This raw hurt, um, uh, Stanford, uh, I was in my co-term year. And, and what was powerful about it to the, my colleagues, again, only black person in that room, was you could have read the same column and imagined it was written today. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at them very emotionally and I said, 
I have, I have betrayed that 20 something because I believed back then when you and I were in college that when we were where we are now, Steve, that, that, that we would have solved these problems, that we would not have a nation where parents have to tell their children survival skills if they're pulled over, where what the elders in my family had to do to me when I was six foot three as a 13 year old, not to run in malls, how to behave when you're walking in your community if law enforcement comes along. And, and so I, I appreciate what New Jersey has done. And I will never make the mistake I think I made that way back when, when I was very young on a board, um, because every little bit of change that I can make added collectively with all of us who are unflinchingly not nice, uh, but loving, um, we, we are making incremental changes. We are uh, uh, changing the status quo. And what you are saying, Steve, to me, it, it, again, in, in, eight, in what you wrote in your first book, is this sense that never think you're alone. You may be alone in that room, but you're a part of something. And, and as I tried to tell to Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, you are not alone in this room on the national stage surrounded by mostly white senators who, who some of whom, I should say, not all the Republicans, but some of whom were coming at you in ways that, that were so vicious, so um, assaulting your dignity that is invincible to anything that they could say. We, we are not alone, and it's not us for them, but we have to somehow um, awaken the best instincts of this nation if we're going to make it um, uh, into the next century. Yeah, well, you, Corey, you're, you're, you're too humble about your own role. And, and, and um, I remember when the, your neighbor's house was on fire and you ran in and I ran into the house and, and, and saved the person in a burning house. And I remember telling my wife, Susan, Susan, I was like, Corey ran into the burning house of his next door neighbor and carried the person out to safety. And Susan says, Corey's a better person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty incredible. I remember hearing about that. Um, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate these, what I would articulate as like individual moments where people either either of you on this call or others that you've mentioned have shown what it looks like to, to, to make the argument for multiracial solidarity. I kind of want to get us back to the systemic part of this though, as well. Um, at the top of our discussion, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. Um, and Steve, you really talk about this in the context of our history of white supremacy here in the United States. And I think that's a really important story that you tell. I'd love for you to say more because, you know, I'm slightly younger than you, but I, I did not, when, when we went through the ACA fight to pass it in 09 and 2010, and then let alone to save it in 2017, I think that was, I had not contextualized it in our long history of white supremacy. I just thought, why would the Republicans not want the Affordable Care Act? It's literally a Republican bill at the end of the day, but now they're fighting it. So can you say more about how that's actually tied to the legacy of white supremacy in the United States um, and what that means for like American, like the moment we're in for American democracy right now? 
Well, I think fundamentally, that's why I wanted to frame up this moment to understand that we are, that in fact, the Confederates and their ideological heirs have never stopped fighting to make this a primarily white country and that their primary objective is that over democracy. And then things have to make more sense because otherwise, if you think we're all in a democracy, if we're all playing by the same set of rules, we subscribe to the same social contract, that we agree with this constitution, there are things you would not do. You wouldn't steal Supreme Court seats. You would not have unanimous Republican opposition to providing health care to people. And so, but would you realize that, no, we're actually in this battle, then it's like, well, then actually I can see and understand why they're doing this. And, and in terms of the depths of it, right? I mean, there is a, I use this, ex, uh, uh, quote the example from the book, Dying of Whiteness, where they uh, talk about this uh, man who ha- was, he was in his forties, but he really needed significant health care. Yeah, I believe it was kidney failure. And they were saying, well, if you ha- if, would you avail yourself of the health care that's available that President Obama's making available? He says, no, I won't take that. I don't want to have any more giveaways to uh, people of color. Oh, he said, um, um, he may have had a, a, a euphemism, but this was the gist of what he was saying. And he says, I would rather die. Mm-hmm. And then I say, die he did. And so it was so fundamental to him, this notion that he was in this battle around what this country could, in, what should be in terms of his vision of what still should be primarily um, reserved for, uh, um, you know, straight white men, that he was willing to die. And so the, the terms of understanding the depths of what we are actually up against, but I also think that is a further example of what's possible, right, is that even like Rosa Parks, we were talking about before, she didn't, Rosa Parks did not and the whole Montgomery bus boycott was not that so that black people could ride the bus. It's so that everybody could ride the bus. And then similarly with moving forward and passing universal health care, it wasn't just so that, although the people thought it was this, that black people would have health care, that it's everybody, as many people as possible. That's the kind of society that we actually want to have. So I do think that that is, a, a, and that whole struggle was a manifestation. It also was a, was a wake-up call to President Obama. He did not realize the ferocity of the attacks that he was going to face. Because on its face, it was a largely Republican proposition until you understand that they were not going to have uh, the everything that was implicated by the election of a black man as president. And there's a whole piece I have in there, too, about the rise of the white domestic terrorism being tied to Obama's rise in a direct backlash to this is not the kind of country people want to actually live in. So I just think that's a little bit of the, the manifestations of how all this has played itself out. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, there's also a a substantively entrenched culture around a multiracial democracy. And the you you talk about the civil rights movement and how that's really shaped where we are today. And that was the moment that helped create a multiracial democracy. Can you talk a bit about like how entrenched, how how even is this war? <laughs> um, who, who's who's really got the upper hand here? Well, this I think fundamentally comes back to this question around democracy, right? In that, and actually, I did this uh, some mathematical analysis. The Confederate states only represented eleven percent of the white population within this country, and after the Civil War, uh, Mississippi and South Carolina were majority black. 
And so then, of course, they had to suppress the vote in that context, right? And so, and so there has been this, that's why I say that forces around the country being a multiracial democracy have been the majority, which is why there's been so much intense, unrelenting, centuries-long voter suppression to try to stop people from voting in as large a numbers as possible. And so, but that's the fundamental point back to, uh, uh, we were talking about in terms of Georgia and these other states, right? I mean, Stacey once said to me, thank you for believing in Georgia long before it was logical. I think it was always logical. The numbers were always there if we would do the work to translate the population majority into an electoral majority. Texas is 38% white. The majority of people, the majority of eligible voters in Texas are, are, are African-American and Latino. And so this notion that this is a very conservative state that we're never going to be able to turn around. I remember when I first saw some of those numbers to Corey, he's all like, we flipped Texas, we flipped the whole game. <laughs> so Biden lost by 600,000 votes. There were 4 million people of color who did not vote in that election. So the path is actually quite clear and quite logical but that's part of the point, too, I think, the work of all these activists is we also have to challenge the Democratic Party institutions who have the money, like actually billions of dollars get spent in every election cycle. We have to challenge the major donors. We have to challenge the different you know, foundations to invest in this work. And uh, I've been on this journey and seen how much these people who are doing great work have to struggle and scrimp and try to get by to get little bits and pieces of resources while we're showering tens of millions of dollars on TV ads that have very little impact. And that's something I think that actually all of the activists on this call can play a role, is also even just demanding the rationale. What is the data underpinning for why, as the some of the super PACs did in 2020, you would spend $7 million in, in, in Iowa and zero in Georgia? What's the data set that leads you to make that decision? And I think that the activists can play a role in trying to hold the institutions accountable who spend all of this money. And that's another piece, I think, of what we need to do going forward. So I do want to uh, get to some questions from folks that are joining us today that they've submitted. So I'm going to take away. I think we have like a few minutes left. Um, but this question is from Pierre and Jamila in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll kick it to Corey first. But we are the parents of two, a middle schooler and high schooler. What are some things young people of pre-voting age can do to participate and help our nation course correct and protect our democracy. We'd all like it to still exist as such when it is time for them to begin voting. Thank you for all you do. They also said that. <laughs> well, I, I just think we all often make a mistake or at least I'll in, indict myself here where we allow our inability to do everything to undermine our determination to do something. Mm -hmm. We, we are a, a, a nation where, where always it's been small groups, whether they're the folks that met in barns that plot the Underground Railroad or people who met in church basements or taverns or where small groups have been able to find these Archimedes points. I think Archimedes said, give me the right lever, I can move the world. And so I just don't underestimate your ability to get involved in organizing and mobilizing. Those are two of the most important things you can do, no matter who you're organizing and mobilizing to make a difference. And the quick example I often give folks is that there was a white guy on a couch in New Jersey in 1964, uh, March 7th, watching TV, and he sees the news, breaking news about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, watches people get beaten, comes to a conclusion that he can't get down there, he can't, can't afford a plane ticket, but he's just going to give an hour of pro bono work in New Jersey 
ends up working with the Fair Housing Council, designing their sting operation, where when Blacks are turned away from uh, uh, homes in these suburbs with great public schools, they would send a white couple to sort of test to see if the house was really sold or, or that Black couple was lied to. And five years later, a Black couple comes up, is turned away from the house of their dreams. The white couple comes, finds out the house is still for sale, puts a bid on the house. On the day of the closing, the white couple doesn't show up, the lawyer and the Black man from the family do. The real estate agent assaults the black, the lawyer, white lawyer, punches him in the face, sigs a Doberman picture on the black guy. Long story short, after a lot of legal rear wall, this family moves into their home. And then 43 years later, their youngest child becomes a United States senator. That's me. Mm -hmm. And I always tell that story because this guy was, I'm only going to give an hour a week. <laughs> and, and he ends up being involved in organizing this effort to stop housing segregation and it, all the dominoes then fell that I'm a United States senator. So I, I just tell folks, never underestimate your power. The most common way people give up their power uh, is not realizing they have it in the first place. And so start by just doing something to organize and mobilize and be an activist. That's wonderful. So Steve, I have a, um, just want to just take a moment. That was a very profound story before we move on. Thank you for sharing that. Well, if I could just quickly, I think a, a lot of folks underestimate. If I quickly add on to that, I don't know if I've even told you this, of course, we have a similar story mm -hmm. is that my parents would not, we, we wanted to move, they moved in our house in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and they would not sell in 1964, would wow. not sell it to them because they were black. And they had my, they had my parents had to go to a white civil rights lawyer, Byron Krantz, to buy the house and to be able to deed it over to my parents. And then that house was able to actually accumulate some resources Then we can get, my mom took out a second, you know, a loan on the home, be able to send me to for, play for my education and it would help the, me on my journey. So this piece about an individual weighing in in the context of a moment, you don't ever know how ultimately it's going to play itself out. Yeah. Amen. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll take one last question from our participants, Emily from Silver Spring, Maryland. Did I get two Maryland? <laughs> Sorry for the Maryland bias, maybe because I'm from Maryland too. <laughs> um, how can we how can we reach non-college white and Latino voters, particularly men, without closer cooperation with labor or others who stress economic issues not favored by corporate donors of the Democratic Party? Her argument, her, what she's saying is anti-racism argument is less effective without a vigorous economic argument. So can you actually, Steve, can you speak to like is it the economy or is it multiracial democracy? And do we have to choose? And how do we square all of this? No, we don't have to choose. But I also want to make sure we're at, that the numbers are correct. And so, first of all, there's this misnomer that we're losing support among Latinos. From what point of fact, what is happening is the non-voting Latinos are now voting more and voting more for the Republicans. Right? So Michelle Tremillo in Texas had pointed this out to me in twenty uh, uh, in real time in 2020 saying that, you know, they're getting out there in frequent voters more than we are. That's what's happening. It's not that we're losing Latino support. And then in terms of the college educated whites, don't underappreciate the ones that we have. Like, so when we were at, in, in college for, I remember going to like black student union meetings and there'd be like five people there. People are all like mad about why other people, why more people aren't there. And I was like, well, what about those who are here? Right. And so there are a lot of non-college educated working class white people who are with us. And so we should not underappreciate them. And frankly, the best way to get greater white support is to take 
unapologetic stand around uh, a multiracial democracy to challenge and call out the attack, the, the dog whistles that we're hearing from the other side and to summon white people to their highest and best selves. That's what Obama did. That's why we had the most the turnout in that regard. So I wouldn't play into this notion, but we have to chase these different uh, notions and up to your point. So yes, it is both racial and economic justice to do need to go hand in hand in that regard. So we're, we're almost at our time. I'm gonna ask just one crisp closing question to Steve here. How do we win? Put it plainly for all of us here. How do we win, Steve? <laughs> we win by turning the multiracial population majority into a multiracial voting majority. Mm -hmm. And then we back the groups and the leaders who are doing that work. And that's who I've tried to lift up in my book. And that's who I've tried to tell their story because it's the roadmap, but it's also, also those specific people and the specific groups. Well, thank you, Senator Booker. Thank you, Steve, for your work, all of your work. And thank you to our co-sponsors, Move On, Netroots, Community Change, Working Families Party, Justice Democrats, Voto Latino. And also, very importantly, the election is less than 22, 21, 20 days away. Critically important. If you want to take action and you haven't yet, you can go to moveon.org slash calls. We're doing nightly phone banks calling likely voters, getting them to vote and getting them to turn out their friends and families to vote. And we're having a lot of fun doing it. So you should join us from anywhere in the country, moveon.org slash calls. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Senator. And hope everyone has a good evening. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. It was a pleasure talking with Corey and Rana, and I hope you've enjoyed this special How We Win series. We really enjoyed speaking with May Nye and Ron Brownstein, and it was a blast getting interviewed by Charlene about my own book writing process. Don't forget to order your copy of How We Win the Civil War and tell everyone you know to get one too. And don't hesitate to buy a copy for a nemesis who needs to get schooled. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at democracyincolor. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Fola Onifade and April Elkier. Until next time, buy the book and keep the faith.